Good morning. If I haven't met you, my name is Chase Jacobs. I'm one of the staff pastors here at Desert Springs, and we're going to be in Genesis chapter 38 this morning. So if you've got your Bible, please turn there. We're actually looking at two chapters, chapter 38 and 39, and you're really going to need a Bible because we're not going to have the words up on the screen this morning. It's for a few reasons. One, we've got a lot of ground to cover, so we're going to have to cruise through this. And then um, the main reason is that uh, chapter 38 is actually the most uh, sexually graphic chapter in the whole book of Genesis, which if you've read Genesis is kind of saying something. So uh, for the sake of the kids with us, I'm going to be doing some paraphrasing and summarizing. I hope that's okay. I promise everything that I'm saying is in the Bible, but if you have your Bible open, you will follow along with me. So if you don't have a Bible, we've got some sitting around the walls here. Surely you can pull it up on your phone or just listen really closely as, uh, as we get into this. So I'm sure you have all had this experience You're watching your favorite TV show or you're reading a really good book. It's one that's got a lot of different characters and different plot lines that are all kind of intersecting. And and the one character that you really, really like gets into some trouble. And then the show or the book leaves you on a cliffhanger. They cut to commercial or the chapter ends. And so you're dying to find out what happened to this character that you really like. And instead, the story picks up with this other plot line and these other characters that you don't like quite as much. And it just leaves you feeling anxious, wanting to know, wanting to go back to this other storyline that you're really, really interested in. Well, if it's a good story, if it's a good TV show, if it's a good book, you know that by the end of the story, all of these plot lines are all going to come together. And, and even the interruptions, the, the tension that is built in leaving the one character aside only to pick them up a little bit later, all of that contributes to making that such a good story. Well, this is what's happening in our passage this morning. If you remember what we looked at the last time we were in Genesis in chapter 37, we began at the last section of the book of Genesis talking about the generations of Jacob, which is really about all of Jacob's sons, his 12 sons, the 12 sons of Israel. And if you remember what we saw in chapter 37, there was a lot of tension growing between these 12 sons, particularly between Joseph and all the other sons. Joseph was the favored son. Remember, his dad gave him that really cool coat of many colors. And Joseph also was having these dreams that he probably unwisely shared with his brothers that one day all of his brothers were going to bow down to him as a ruler. So there's this tension growing through all of chapter 37 until finally it gets to the climax where uh, Joseph's other brothers have had enough and they attack him and they throw him into a pit and then they sell him to Midianite slave traders down to Egypt and fake his own death by presenting that coat of many colors as evidence to their dad that he was eaten by wild animals, so they say, and all the while Joseph is on his way to Egypt. Now, I don't know how messed up your family is, but as we will see even today that God works with messed up families. Chapter 37 ends with this, verse 36 Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So Joseph's in big trouble. And as we turn to chapter 38, we want to find out what happens to Joseph, only to find that Moses has taken us on a detour to consider the plot line of one of these other sons of Jacob, which is Judah. Now, just like in your TV show, part of this is just to serve the drama of the story. It makes you uh, want to know even more what happens to Joseph as we build some tension here. But actually, it's very important to Moses and for us to know what happens 
to Judah with the plot line of Judah and his story. This is because Judah, of all of the sons of Israel, at this point is the next in line to inherit the rights of the firstborn. Okay, so Joseph may have been the favored son, but that's because he was the baby. He was the son of Jacob's old age. But Judah is actually the next in line to receive the promises of being the firstborn. And that's actually surprising itself. If you remember, Judah's the fourthborn to Jacob, to Israel. But the first three, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, have all disqualified themselves. We're not going to go into that. It was bad enough. But now we get to Judah. So Judah is the next in line to receive all of the promises of Jacob. So we want to know, we need to know what happens to Judah and what happens to Judah's line. I think we actually even see this idea of Judah emerging as the, the firstborn, as it were, in chapter 37. If you remember, Judah's kind of already starting to act as the leader of all of his brothers there. It was Judah's idea to sell Joseph into slavery to the Midianites. And certainly when Judah comes up later in the book of Genesis, he's very much going to be acting as kind of the spokesman and as the, the leader. So, so it's very much important that we find out what happens to Judah. But there's one more reason that Moses takes us on this detour to consider Judah in chapter 38 that is very interesting. It's because he is actually setting up Judah as a contrast to Joseph. So Moses wants us to compare and contrast Judah and Joseph. That's why we're looking at chapters 38 and 39 when it picks up again with the Joseph story. We're looking at them together because when we understand how wicked Judah is and how righteous and blessed Joseph is, it helps us understand more the big idea of this whole Joseph story and what's happening. Because as we're going to see this morning, this is a story of a, of a wicked family, not just a wicked man, Judah, but a whole wicked family that he leads and a blessed slave. And as we consider them in light of one another and in the bigger story, what, we emerge, what emerges is this big idea that God's plan is to use the suffering of this blessed slave, Joseph, in order to turn around and bless this wicked family. So he's going to use the suffering of this blessed slave to bless this wicked family, the wicked the family of Judah and, and really the wicked family of Israel and, and really all of the wicked families of the whole earth that God's plan is to use Joseph to bless this wicked family by giving us an even greater Joseph, Jesus Christ, who doesn't come in the line of Joseph but comes in the line of Judah to save wicked people like Judah so that he can bless us like Joseph. So that's a big idea of this passage. Jesus Christ is the greater Joseph who comes in the line of Judah to save people like Judah so that God can bless us like Joseph. That's where we're going this morning. We're going to look at it in two big parts, just chapter 38 and chapter 39, but then in both of these chapters, we're going to have three points in them, okay? So six all together, and hopefully you see how they parallel with one another. So chapter 38 is about this wicked family, and our first point in your outline is down in Canaan. So if you're looking at your Bible, verse 1 of chapter 38 says, It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. So this just means Judah has gone away from the proximity of his family to settle among Canaanites. And those of us who have read Genesis up to this point should all be saying a collective rut-row <laughs> because we have seen what has happened when the people of God are around the Canaanites. The Canaanites are wicked people. They are idolaters. They are violent. They are sexually immoral. Just remember what happened when Jacob settled his family by Canaanites in chapter 34. You remember his daughter, Dinah? If we keep on reading, not only has Judah settled down by Canaanites, but he actually marries 
a Canaanite woman. Again, rut-row. Abraham and Isaac both insisted that their sons not marry Canaanite women because they knew of their idolatry and their wickedness that it would threaten the very promise of the covenants that God had made to Abraham. But Judah marries a Canaanite woman. We keep on reading. They have three sons, Er, E-R, Er, Onan, and Shelah. In verse 6, it says, Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. The word Tamar means date palm, or like a palm tree. And in the book, The Song of Solomon, this word Tamar and this illustration, this metaphor of a date palm is used to describe shapeliness and attractiveness. And so many scholars think that this is being emphasized here, that Tamar is quite beautiful. Judah marries her to his firstborn son, Er. And then look at verse 7. It says, but Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. I love how brief that is. There's no explanation of what Er did, just God knew he was wicked and God killed him. And he must have been really wicked for God to put him to death like this, because the last time this has really happened was Sodom and Gomorrah, okay? God is putting this man to death, we don't know why, but that leaves Tamar as a widow in the family of Judah. So this is where, in verse 8, things get a little weird for us. Judah says to Onan, who's the second son in the family, perform the duty of a brother-in-law to your brother's wife and raise up offspring for your brother. So this, like I said, is, is weird for us, but this was very common back in the ancient world. The practice was, especially in tribal cultures, in clan cultures like this is, that if a man dies and his widow is left childless, but still able to have children, then it is the obligation of that deceased man's brother or nearest relative to marry his brother's widow and to have children with her. And he's supposed to care for those children and raise those children and care for that widow, to care for that wife. But when she has children, those children are not counted as the living brother's children, but they're actually counted as the children of the deceased brother. Does that make sense? So this is called leveret marriage. That word leveret, if you've heard that, it's from a Latin word that means husband's brother. And like I said, this sounds weird to us. I don't, you know, I'm kind of glad that we don't do this this way anymore. But at the time, this was actually a very noble and honorable practice. This is actually the best part of the story, is that they are trying to care for Tamar this way. This is the idea, is that she is a widow in a very vulnerable position socially, and so this is a way of caring for her. Not only is it a way of caring for her, but it's also a way of honoring the deceased brother by ensuring that he has children in his line, in his name, to carry on his inheritance. In elsewhere in the Bible, when this is talked about, and it's talked about a lot, this is uh, the, the brother that marries the widow is called a redeemer because he's almost redeeming the life of his brother from death by giving him perpetuity in these children. If you wanted to, you could read the book of Ruth, which is another Old Testament book, a very short book, a very beautiful book. If you've never read it, go read it today. The whole main idea of the book of Ruth has to do with this idea of leveret marriage. And in that case, it's when it works really, really well. It's a noble thing. It's a beautiful thing. And our text... It does not work so well. It does not work so well because Onan actually refuses to be the kinsman redeemer. He refuses to be Tamar's redeemer. And the, and the text tells us explicitly, explicitly why. In verse 9 it says, Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. 
That's how this works. Those would be heirs' sons, but Onan would have to share his inheritance with them. He'd have to raise these kids that he wouldn't even get to claim. And so he's being selfish. He's being callous by not wanting to honor his brother this way, not wanting to give uh, Tamar these children. He doesn't want to be the redeemer, but he doesn't refuse outright. This is the really important thing to see this, that he refuses to be the redeemer, but he doesn't refuse outright. Instead, he fakes it. He's a fake redeemer. So this is what he does is he marries Tamar, and he is regularly intimate with her, but he prevents her from becoming pregnant. That's what's happening in this story. He's using natural birth control methods to prevent her from becoming pregnant. So he is lying. He is faking. The text doesn't tell us any more about what his relationship with Tamar looks like, what their marriage was like. It could have been a great marriage, except that he's a lying cheat, okay? But we just don't know, so we can't read into it too much. But, but here's the thing that we should see. He's trying to get all of the credit, all of the honor for being a good redeemer and a good husband, but he's secretly refusing to do the right thing. He is sinning in secret, and he thinks he's getting away with it. Because after all, how is this playing out? It's all happening in the dark. It's all happening in the privacy of his own bedroom. He is keeping this sin secret. But then look at verse 10. And what Onan did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And he put him to death also. So Onan's being a fake redeemer and he thinks he's getting away with it. He's sinning in secret and it was all done in the sight of the Lord. God saw everything. This is a bigger theme in the Joseph story. This is a, kind of a big theme in the whole book of Genesis is this idea of people sinning and trying to keep it secret. Think of the Joseph story. The brothers threw Joseph into a pit, sold him into slavery, then faked his death and have been lying to their dad for decades, keeping a secret Sin. We'll even see just in the next story with Judah that Judah is trying to keep secret sin. We have seen Jacob being a deceiver, secretly sinning. We have seen Abraham lying and keeping secret sin. We saw Adam in the garden trying to hide from God. There are no secrets from God. In the book of Matthew, Jesus calls God our Father who sees in secret. Ecclesiastes 12, 14 says... God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. There are no secret sins with God. And God saw Onan's sin. What he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord because he was not fulfilling his obligation to redeem Tamar. And so God kills him. Then we get to verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. So remember, Shelah's the third son, the last son. He's apparently so young still that he's not ready to be given as a husband. So Judah says, go, go wait. Go wait for Shelah to grow up. And then we see in this verse what his motives really were. It says, for Judah feared that Shelah would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. So Judah thinks the problem's with Tamar. You know, you can't blame him. He doesn't know what's happening. He's just seen that this chick marries two of his sons, and then they both die. And so he's afraid for Shelah. 
And so he lies. He keeps a secret. He says, Tamar, you know, go, just go wait, and I'll give you Shayla when it's time. But he has no intention of doing that. He's worried for Shayla. He's worried for his son, his own seed, the, the one who would receive his blessing of the firstborn, the one who would receive the promise of the seed. And so this is just one more guy in the book of Genesis who, out of fear, is lying and hurting other people by acting in his own flesh to preserve the promises of God to try and preserve the promise of the seed. And so he sends Tamar away. He says, go stay in your father's house with a lie. Now this brings us to our next point. This is a temptation and an accusation. So starting in verse 12, a temptation and an accusation. When we come to verse 12, we get the sense many years have passed. A lot has happened. Judah's own wife has passed away. Shelah has grown up. But Tamar has not been given to him in marriage. And we should rightly sympathize with Tamar here. We should be sad for Tamar. She has lost two husbands. She still remains childless. She is waiting in her father's house as a widow for Judah to fulfill what he promised to her, which he has no intention of doing. She is being treated horribly. She is being treated wickedly. And God knows that. God has said that. Her husbands have acted wickedly. So what what is happening to her is wrong. And she has every right to be hurt and frustrated and sad. But none of that justifies what Tamar does next. Tamar, instead of taking her right hurt and sadness and frustration to the Lord and waiting patiently for God to accomplish his purposes, she too takes matters into her own hands, and she responds to wickedness with wickedness of her own. So this is what she does. Tamar hears that Judah is going to a certain place to celebrate the sheep-shearing season. Say that three times fast. Which in the Canaanite land would have been a very raucous party. Okay, It's this time of celebration, and, and she hears that Judah is going to be in this certain place. She knows that Judah has no intention of giving her to Shelah for marriage. And so what she does is she goes ahead of Judah and she pretends to be a prostitute. She sets herself up. She calls out to him. And actually, she's not just pretending to be any prostitute. She's pretending to be a cult prostitute. At least that's what it seems like, that she's pretending to be um, not just someone who sells her body for pleasure, but someone who does that as an act of pagan worship. So that just should clue you into how depraved the Canaanites were, that when they think of how do we worship our gods, that is included in their practices. Okay, this is, this is bad. This is wicked stuff. But, but think about this. This also goes to show how depraved Judah was that Tamar thought that this would work. Well, what does that say about Judah's reputation? What does that say about Judah's character? She's risking a lot with this little ploy, and so she's got to think there's a pretty good chance of this happening. And, and then what does it say about Tamar that this thought even crossed her mind in the first place, much less that she acts on it? This is a messed up family. This is a wicked family. But Tamar was right. It works. She sets herself up. She tempts Judah, and from the text, you kind of get the idea that Judah didn't even put up a fight. He didn't even try to resist this. And Tamar is very clever in how she goes about this business transaction. She asks for uh, some proof of, of identity 
as a down payment for, or, or as a guarantee that, that Judah would actually make the payment that he had promised to her. So she says, give me some of this evidence. I'm going to hold on to it until you give me the payment. Give me your signet and its cord and a staff. This would be like saying, leave with me your driver's license until I get the cash in hand. And that's what Judah does. So they have this encounter. Uh, Tamar walks her own way with the evidence in hand, and she actually goes her own way with something else, which is a pregnancy. She gets what she ultimately wanted. She has become pregnant through Judah, and they both go their own way. Tamar goes back to her father's house. Judah is going, you know, being, being Judah. More secret sin flying around. Then we come to verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. I mean, that's rich, right? Now, Judah doesn't get what's happening, okay? Judah doesn't know. He just thinks Tamar, who is still technically pledged to marry his son that he has no intention of giving her to, but she's still technically engaged to him. He thinks she's been going around and being with other guys. And so I think Judah just kind of sees, now's my chance to finally get rid of this daughter-in-law that I never really liked in the first place. Let her be burned. And the double standard is obvious. There's a neat verse in Hosea that talks about how much God hates this kind of double standard, that women are held to account in a different way than men are. God does not like that. We should not do that, okay? But Judah is holding Tamar to this double standard. He says, let her be burned. And then look at verse 25. As Tamar was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant, holding out the signet and the cord and the staff. Hey, here's the ID of the guy that did this to me. And she said, please identify who these are. How's that for a gotcha moment? Right? I mean, that's like right up there with David and Bathsheba and Nathan. When Nathan gets David to kind of hang himself with his own words, you are the man. You're the one. Judah is busted. And in condemning Tamar, saying what she has done deserves death, he's condemning himself. He has condemned himself. There's no getting around it. And that's why he says in verse 26, then Judah identified them. And he said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not know her again. Now, let's be very clear. What Judah is not saying is that Tamar is actually righteous. She is only more righteous than he is. She's more in the right than he is. And so what Judah is just saying is, here's how low I am. And it's kind of like a confession, isn't it? Judah had this secret sin, and and he didn't bring that secret sin into the light on his own. But God brought it into the light for him through Tamar, and that's a grace, isn't it? God could have just put Judah to death the way he did Aaron and the way he did Onan, but instead he disciplined Judah and forced him to the end of himself where he was at this point where he had to confess, man, I've got no righteousness. I'm just completely in the wrong here. Maybe some of you are walking in here right now in secret sin. It's not a secret from God. 
And maybe God in his grace will discipline you and bring you to the end of yourself and work these circumstances out where you can't keep your sin a secret anymore. But guys, we know how that goes. Even if that is God's grace and God redeems that, that is not the best way for this to happen. How much better if Judah had brought his sin into the light on his own? How much better for you? As I said, there's no sin that's a secret from God. And there's also no secret sin that God can't forgive. Let me say that again. There is no sin in your life that's a secret from God. And the wages of sin is death, condemnation. But there is no secret sin in your life that God can't forgive if you will confess it. Remember what we read this morning. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, say it out loud. I am not righteous. I have no righteous. If we can confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove your sins from you. Amen? Amen. Confession of sin. Admitting that you are in the wrong. That is the very first step of God completely transforming your life. I think that's what happened with Judah. We don't know for sure. We don't know how this moment really affected Judah on the inside, but what we do know is that this is really the last that we hear from Judah for many, many chapters in the book of Genesis. And then when he does emerge back on the scene, he seems different. He seems to be willing to sacrifice himself for his brothers rather than to be looking out for his own interests. It seems like this really affected him. So I think maybe we can even see God working to bless his chosen people, even through their discipline, even through their secret sin, even through all of their mess. God is working to bless them by humbling them and bringing them to the point of repentance, maybe. But what we certainly know is that God is at work blessing Judah in another way. So this brings us to our third point. The blessing continues. Starts in verse 27. When the time of Tamar's labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez, which means breach. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. So she's got twins in her womb. This has happened before. Jacob and Esau, remember, and just like them, they're wrestling inside the womb here. Some crazy stuff happens with these twins. I asked, uh, I asked my friend, Dr. Stephen Brown, back there, he's an OBGYN, because I was like, can this really happen? Is this, like, how does this work? I don't know anything about this stuff. Um, so I asked him, tell me what you think on this. He sent me a great long email with a bunch of words that I had never heard before <laughs> about amniotic sacs and transverse positions and all, you know. Um, but, but the short, if I, if I understood his email correctly, which is questionable, uh, <laughs> yes, this can totally happen. 
And actually what it seems like is that if this were to happen, this is what it would happen like, that an experienced midwife would know that a baby can't be born arm first. And so they would kind of reposition the baby and try to get the arm to go back in. And in doing that, it would likely lead to the whole other baby coming out. So this seems actually to be very uh, biologically accurate that it, that it would happen like this. So if you want to learn more about the successful delivery of transverse monoamniotic twins, go talk to Stefan. <laughs> That's all I got. But this is a cool story because I think God's using this thing that really happens to, to work some very deep symbolism. Because this is, this is what's happened. Zerah technically came out first. It was his arm that came out first. That's why they tied the string around it because whoever's first, it matters a lot. But just like with Jacob and Esau, just like Cain and Abel, even with Judah himself, there's this theme, this theme in Genesis of the blessing going to the kid that you don't expect. That God and his purposes will often bless the people that you wouldn't see coming. And that's what happens here. You would expect it to be Zerah, but then Perez comes and he makes a breach. He kind of busts his way into the promised line, just like Tamar did, just like Judah did. This is all a breach. This is all unexpected, but this is how it happened. You don't have to turn there, but if you were to turn to Matthew chapter one, it recounts the genealogy of the line of promise starting with Abraham going all the way to Jesus. And if you were to read that, you would see Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah. Remember, he's fourth, but he gets the, the name. Jacob is the father of Judah. Judah was the father of Perez by Tamar. That's what it says in Matthew chapter one. So these kids, you know, this whole thing with the leveret marriage and who's gonna carry on the name of heir. Well, these kids aren't even heirs' kids. They're Judah's kids. Now, how that came about shouldn't have happened, but it did, and God blessed it. The line goes through Judah and Tamar and Perez, who was the second born. But, but the fact that Tamar is mentioned, we have to appreciate the significance of this. There are only three women named in the entire genealogy of Jesus, and one of them is Tamar. This Canaanite woman who pretended to be a cult prostitute to sleep with her father-in-law so that she could secure children for herself, she's one of the women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. And if you're wondering, the other two are Ruth, who is the right recipient of a leveret marriage, and then Rahab, who was actually a prostitute. These are the three women that are named by name, the ones alluded to, right? The wife of Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba. These are the women that God has happily included in the genealogy of the Messiah because he's making a point that the line of promise is not a line of perfect people. It's not a line of people who are impressive. It is not the line of people who are the obvious choice. The people that God came to save are the deceivers and the prostitutes and the screw-ups, and the weak and wounded sinners. There's only one perfect person in that whole genealogy, and it's Jesus Christ. And it is his father who has, work, who has been at work in all of this messed up line to make sure that his promises of blessing continue. And we're gonna come back to that, but we need to look at chapter 39. We're gonna look at this briefly. Chapter 39 is a story of a blessed 
slave. And the way that we're going to look at this is really to compare it and contrast it with what has happened in the story of Judah. So right at the beginning, in this first point, we see down in Egypt. So look at verse 1 of chapter 39. It says, now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt. If you write in your Bible, which I highly encourage, you could circle the word down there and then the word down in chapter 38 because this is a contrast. Judah willingly goes down into a pagan land and starts a family. Joseph is unwillingly brought down to a pagan land and starts working for a family. Still in verse 1, it says, And Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought Joseph from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. Now listen to verse 2. This is really important. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord is on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. And the really important thing for us to pay attention to in this is things that are repeated in this chapter. We see the repetition of the word, the Lord. That's Yahweh, the covenant name of God. It's repeated eight times in this chapter and very little in the rest of the Joseph story. Okay, but what this is cluing us into is the covenant faithfulness of the Lord, of Yahweh, to his chosen people. And that is made really explicit by another repetition that you see here. The Lord was with Joseph. So you're going to see that a lot here in these verses. And then if you go down to the very end of the chapter, you're going to see that coming up again. The Lord was with Joseph. So these are the bookends of chapter 9. That's the big idea of chapter 39. The Lord was with Joseph. But stop and think about this. What's been happening to Joseph? Joseph was just traumatically attacked by his brothers, sold as a slave, taken all the way down to a pagan country, and sold to work in this guy's house. And sure, we see God being with him and blessing him and that while he's in Potiphar's house, he becomes very successful. Okay, things are going well for him. But, but we're going to see in just a second as we keep on reading that he's going to be falsely accused of something and then thrown into prison. So by the time this chapter ends, Joseph is sitting in a prison cell. And yet even there in prison, the Lord was with Joseph and he is successful again. So things are going well for him in prison. So if I'm Joseph... And all of this stuff has happened to me, and I'm reflecting on my life. I don't know that I would say the banner over my life is that the Lord is with me, and that I'm a really hashtag blessed guy. I just don't, I would be saying the Lord has abandoned me. So I might be tempted to abandon the Lord. This is not the successful, prosperous life that I envisioned for myself. But what this is trying to say to us is that no matter what it looks like at any one moment in your life, if you are the Lord's, if you can call Yahweh your covenant God through our new covenant relationship with him and Jesus Christ, then the Lord is with you. Despite all appearances to the contrary, 
You don't know what God is going to do with your life, what is going to happen. All you know is that the Lord is with you and he has blessed you in Jesus Christ. And this is what's gonna keep on uh, being revealed to us in this chapter. So let's go to our next point, starting in, still in verse six. This is another temptation and an accusation. So the end of verse six. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph. Ruh-ro. I'm just going to keep doing that so you guys think it's funny. <laughs> she cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. I think we're meant to draw parallels here to Tamar. Tamar, who sat on the side of the road and said, lie with me. And unlike Judah, verse 8, Joseph refused. And said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? I would circle that word wickedness. Calling back to chapter 38. Judah's family was marked by wickedness Joseph refuses to do any wickedness. And he doesn't refuse to do it because this Potiphar guy has been really, really nice to me and I don't want to hurt him. He says, no, that would be a sin against God. So he has not abandoned God. He is holding fast in faith. Even all the suffering that he endures, has endured, he is still fearing God He refuses to respond to wickedness with more wickedness. Even though the opportunity is right there in front of him, he could even get back at Potiphar for technically still owning him, and the whole thing would have happened in secret. But he refuses. In fact, not only is this a contrast to Judah, which itself is really cool, but it's actually a contrast to Adam in the garden. Because he's in the house, and what does he say? My master has given me everything in the house except this one thing. He said, don't touch it. And unlike Adam, Joseph refuses to disobey and take the one thing that's been denied him. You see that? Isn't that cool? And not only does he refuse it once, but he refuses it over and over and over again. Verse 10, as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. But... One day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he's brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that, I lifted up my voice and cried out. He left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you brought among us came in to to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. So again, here's a woman presenting personal items as proof of sexual immorality. Here's this woman presenting personal items as false proof of sexual immorality. Man, Joseph has a lot of trouble with his clothes. Am I right? (laughs) My brother just needs to hold on to his coat. 
Verse 19, as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. This brings us to our last point, verse 21 through 23, the blessing continues. Even in prison, verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all of the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So again, isn't this cool? Moses is so good. I guess it's the Holy Spirit, but writing with these bookends here, the Lord is with him, blessing Joseph, even though he's in prison. And you really have to know what the rest of the story is to understand the significance of this moment. We're gonna leave you on a cliffhanger here, but it's actually through Joseph being in prison and being blessed in prison that God is going to use this opportunity that Joseph has to be the means of blessing and saving his whole family. So that's where we're going. We're gonna start seeing it next week. But the point is that if Joseph had not been brought into prison, then he wouldn't have had the opportunity to not only become number two in a prison or number two in even a a official's house, but Joseph actually will become the number two of all of Egypt. But that came through his suffering. That came by being in prison. So just, again, we don't know where we are in the story that God has to use us in our life. But Joseph is in prison. He's waiting for God to act, for God to redeem. He is suffering. And that's where we leave the story. He's suffering even as he is blessed. So let's step back for a minute and let's just think about what we've seen of Joseph so far. Just kind of consider Joseph in these, in these broad sketches, right? So Joseph is a son beloved by his father who has been betrayed by his own people. Ryan talked about this. He was even sold for silver. Joseph leaves his home. He is subjected to a life of service and suffering. Joseph is tempted terribly and resists temptation multiple times, refusing to sin against God. Joseph is a better Adam. And then Joseph is falsely accused and arrested and condemned. And God uses his suffering to save his brothers and ultimately to become a blessing to the whole world. Does that sound familiar? We see Jesus Christ on every page of the Joseph story. So if I was going to let you write the Bible and say you've got two brothers to pick from, Judah or Joseph, you get to pick which one the Messiah gets to be born into their family. Which, which line is gonna be the Messianic line? Which line would you pick? Joseph, because that's how we work, right? The best, the purest, the most successful, the most handsome. We're gonna pick that guy. But who did God pick? Judah. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Why? Jesus is one like Joseph. In fact, he comes and he is a better Joseph. 
but he comes in the line of Judah. Because it's not the people like Joseph who need to be saved. Actually, it is. But you know what I'm saying. Jesus didn't come just to save the successful, handsome, faithful people. Jesus came to save the people like Judah. Jesus came to save the people like me. Jesus came to save the people like you. I just love this way the Judah story ends where Judah is just brought low. He realizes I am not righteous. Anybody else feeling like a Judah this morning? Jesus Christ came in Judah's line because it's people like Judah who need to be saved. And he has because he lived like a better Joseph and he suffered perfectly on our behalf to take all of our sin onto himself. Even your secret sin, the sin that you haven't brought out into the light yet, as soon as you bring it out into the light, as God is in the light, all of your sin is transferred to Jesus Christ and he was condemned. He was put to death by God. Not for his wickedness, he was perfect, but for all of your wickedness. Jesus Christ died on the cross and more than that, he was raised so that all of these people who would believe in him and follow him, would be brought into that line, would be brought into that blessing so that you, though you were a Judah, will now stand in relationship to God just like Joseph did, in a perfect relationship with God, being blessed by God, with God being with you, no matter what you're going through. I can't hold out that promise to you that God is with you in everything and that whatever you're going through will work out for good. I cannot make that promise to you unless you have believed in God through Jesus Christ. But if you are God's, then you are blessed like Joseph was. And no matter where you're at in this moment, no matter what you're being tempted by, no matter what you're suffering through, no matter what part of the story of your life, no matter what plot line you're on at this moment, I know that God is gonna work all of that together for good. How do I know that? Because Jesus was the better Joseph who came in the line of Judah to suffer for the people like Judah so that we can all be blessed like Joseph. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for that hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Not in ourselves. We all confess alike that we are sinful and unclean. But we thank you for Jesus who didn't give in to temptation, who feared God perfectly, and who suffered the wrath of God that we deserve and who lives forever with us. He is God with us. And so, Lord, I pray that we would confess our sins and that we would know that you have forgiven us because of Jesus. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to walk in faith and to walk in fear as we wait to see the outcome of your promised blessing in our lives and in your work that you're doing in the whole world for the glory of Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.